Luke 9, 18 through 22. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who does the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets of old, has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. God, now we uh, thank you for your holy word. We thank you, Lord, for, um, uh, for being here today. And we pray that you would illuminate our hearts. And as we glance and take a moment to uh, ponder the words of Christ, uh, that we would be transformed by it. That its truth would, uh, would convict our hearts and convince us and um, that we would be changed and leave differently than the way we came in. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Uh, well, uh, the question um, that Jesus poses to um, the disciples here is a great question. Who is Jesus? We all have uh, 2,000 years of theological reflection Um, from the church and writings, and we all know the answer to that question. But that question is a pressing one for Jesus' audience and for Luke's first readers of the gospel. And so it may seem like a foregone conclusion, uh, but the first phrasing of that question comes from the lips of Herod the Tetrarch. It's back in the ninth verse of the chapter we're in, Uh, after Herod hears all these rumors about Jesus, and he says, I beheaded John, who then is this? So Herod thought he had gotten rid of John, this kind of prophet, who was saying things he didn't want to hear. That's kind of what prophets do. Prophets say things that hurt, because the truth hurts, you know? Uh, And so sometimes when you say things that are true, they're not always received joyfully, Right? You got that one person in your life who uh, just kind of always tells you the way, like, like it is, and you're grateful for that person, but you don't want to be around that person all the time, um, especially if they see it as their mission to always be the one to tell you, you know, what's true and what's right, or tell you the way it is, you know, like giving it to you straight. Well, John the Baptist was like that, and prophets are like that, and so John uh, the Baptist was executed by Herod, and here's this other person going around saying things and doing things just like John. And early in the chapter, Herod says, I thought I got rid of John. Who then is this? And so this question is revisited here in our text this morning in Luke 9 and 18. And it's implicitly answered uh, in this chapter by the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, which... Uh, late in the afternoon, Jesus had taken five loaves and two fish and broke them in his hand and continued to distribute and feed the 5,000. Now, you may be saying, well, where, where was this story? I actually deliberately have skipped over the story of the feeding of the 5,000 because the, the purpose of that is just to reinforce 
who Jesus is through his miracles. So if we're trying to figure out why all these miracles, why is Luke giving us one miracle after another, after another, after another, after another, it's a preponderance of evidence as to Jesus's true identity. This overwhelming uh, evidence about who Jesus is. There's a miracle of the healings, and there's the casting out of the demons, and there's more healings, and there's more demon confrontation, and at every one, Jesus is victorious. And we talked about last week how Jesus empowered the disciples to do what he was doing, to proclaim the kingdom and have power over all demons. And so this is the first miracle where the disciples participate with Jesus. So he tells them, feed the crowds, and they say, well, we don't have much food. And so there's this miracle where as Jesus and the disciples break the fish and the bread, it just keeps breaking off. It doesn't deplete. I mean, that's, that's amazing, right? So there's this huge crowd of people, 5,000. Some would say, well, that's just the men. You know, if you consider women and children, you've got more people. And here is Jesus. He's breaking off bread, and it just keeps breaking. And it's this infinite resource of food at Jesus' miraculous touch to feed this large crowd of people. And when we think about that, because miracles are supposed to give attestation to who Jesus is, we would say, this is a miracle of creation. Jesus is creating food on the spot. Just like in the very beginning, he was with the Father and the Holy Spirit creating the cosmos, according to John 1. He's creating food, right? There, there really is only a couple fish and loaves, but he's, he's just making it so that it doesn't run out. And what that miracle ought to do, what all of his miracles should do, is cause people to be persuaded and convinced that this man is more than just a teacher. That he's more than just a prophet. And so, in verse 18, Jesus is alone praying with the disciples, we're told. Verse 18. Next slide. Now it happened... Um, sorry, verse 18a, go back one. There we go. Now it happened that as he, was, as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And I'll pause here before we move on with the story and talk a little bit about Jesus' ministry of prayer. Um, <clears throat> the aspect of Jesus and his praying ministry, I've said it before in the past, may be one of the most underdeveloped characteristics about Jesus. Think of him as a sinless man, a perfect man, a holy man, God in the flesh, all of these things, but we don't talk a whole lot about his praying. And so Luke is giving us another example of Jesus uh, praying before import, another important event. Think about your own lives. When big things happen, hopefully you pray about important things. Some of us just kind of go in by the seat of our pants and just hope for the best. Uh, but hopefully, you know that you have access to God because of Jesus and you pray for important things. Hopefully, you pray for things that are not so important. But Jesus was always praying. He had a ministry of prayer. And that may kind of seem counterintuitive for us because, 
wait a minute, if Jesus is God, why, is, why does he need to pray? Right? Isn't the answer just found within? Well, remember, Jesus was fully man. He wasn't pretending to be a man. He wasn't God with a costume on. He was fully God. He was fully man and subject to the limitations of humanity in his manhood and needed the guidance and help of the Father through all of his life and ministry. And so here before this event, Jesus is praying. We see Jesus praying at the Jordan River before his baptism in Luke 3. Uh, Jesus often withdrew to desolate places to pray. Uh, In Luke 6, we remember just a couple chapters ago, Jesus prayed all night in the mountain. He was a model of prayer. Last week, I mentioned Leonard Ravenhill. Leonard Ravenhill has books on prayer. He's known for his theology of prayer. And here's what he says about prayer. A man who kneels before God will stand before men. At the judgment seat, the most embarrassing thing the believer will face will be the smallness of his or her praying. Ravenhill says, no man... I don't care how colossal his intellect, no man is greater than his prayer life. Prayer is the most unexplored area of the Christian life. By way of quick application, how how do we change that? So wait a minute, I thought this was a sermon about who Jesus is. We're getting there, but before we get there, we just look at Jesus as a model, a model of prayer. We look at our own lives and we say, how do we become more like Jesus in his prayer life, in the prayer that he exhibited for us. Well, prayer needs to be more than just a petition. In fact, if all prayers are for you, it's just a time where you just ask God to take care of all the things in your life you know are kind of out of your control, uh, prayer won't be very joyful. It won't really be something you look forward to. Prayer has to be a time spent in adoration, and that means worship. It also has to be a time spent in confession. So for prayer to be something we look forward to and for our prayers to change and for our experience in prayer to be different, prayer can, has to be more than just petition. It has to be time of worship and a time of confession. Lord's Prayer gives us that example, right? Time of worship and a time of confession. Um, The reason prayer seems so laborious to us often is because we do very little during prayer that is life-giving. And I get it, right? You're busy, rushing out the door, you know, you have to be somewhere at 8, you you know, you woke up at 7.05, and, you know, you're headed out the door with your your stuff and, you know, half a bagel in your mouth, and you jump in the car, and you're hoping in the 11 minutes it takes from your house to the place you're going that that prayer will suffice. And yes, God hears those prayers. And God is faithful. But those are not the kind of prayers that are life-giving. The kind of prayers where, oh boy, I really looked forward to that. Now, I mean, maybe you do. Maybe you've got 40 minutes on the way to work and it's just you, you know, worshiping the Lord and you've got, you know, some type of, you know, maybe like a hymn or a song on. I don't know, they got a hymn station, probably not. But, you know, something, you know, I mean, there's, you can connect. You can connect in the car. I'm not saying you can't. What I'm saying, though, is, If prayers are just petitions, they're not what God has meant them to be. Spend another 15 minutes in prayer, if you can, being vulnerable vulnerable before God. 
um, about the things you struggle with, your darkest struggles. Spend another 15 minutes cycling through the things you're thankful for, and your heart will well up with adoration and worship for God when you start to meditate on how good he's been to you. This is why petition is not enough to have a rich prayer life. Because prayer is communication with God and it's communing with God. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He is communing with the Father. Just to give you some really deep theology for a moment, before the world was ever created in eternity past, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had communion with each other. They loved each other. They had fellowship with each other. There was never a time when the Father wasn't a Father and the Son wasn't a Son. And the Holy Spirit was there in union with with the Father and the Son and had fellowship together. And so that communion, I would think, Jesus missed. He missed that time with the Father before the world began, before the incarnation, and he's talking to the Father. And maybe he's praying that the disciples would be able to understand who he really is. Jesus bathed himself in prayer. We can tend to think of Jesus as only asking questions rhetorically, right? When we read this text and um, Jesus asks anyone questions, we always feel that Jesus has an ulterior motive, and often he does. He's trying to bring out a truth. He's trying to create a teaching moment by asking a question to get people to think about things. But um, when we read words like this here, who do you say that I am, I think there's a good reason to believe that Jesus genuinely wanted to know what people thought about him. Verse 19 and he asked them, uh, go back one, we've got two verse 19, sir. Uh, I'm sorry, go to the next one. There we go. Um, maybe we've skipped one. Um, Jesus asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Jesus wants to know, what are the crowds saying about me? Who are the crowds saying I am? They hear the chatter. Jesus wants to know. And the crowds are clearly on to something. Uh, they are on to the fact that Jesus is some kind of prophet, some kind of powerful prophet. But as amazing as it must have been for them to see Jesus' miracles and his teaching, they miss it. They get the answer wrong. And it's blameworthy because they ought to have come to the conclusion that he was the Messiah. Who do the crowds say that I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you are a prophet from old who has risen from the dead. But they miss it. And it's a colossal miss. Because almost confessing who Jesus is is as good as being a million miles away. You think about in your heart, well, who do people I know say that Jesus is? There's a lot of versions for Jesus of Jesus today. Throughout history, there, there always has been. 
Um, there's the countless almost there versions of Jesus. I, play, I grew up playing horseshoes with my dad, and you know, as they say, you know, close only counts in horseshoes. But in everything else, it's a miss. If you miss by an inch, you still miss. And even just coming really close to who Jesus is at Great Prophet, but not acknowledging that he is the Messiah is still a miss. All these almost there versions of Jesus. In Islam, Jesus is a great prophet. And others see him as this extreme example of virtue. Liberal scholars say he's a model of great moral teaching, all while denying who he really was. Uh, C.S. Lewis is famous for the lunatic liar and lord trilemma. Just raise your hands if you've ever heard of this. It's the trilemma. Jesus is either a lunatic liar or he's Lord. And this is what C.S. Lewis famously said. Um, he said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that pe people often say about him. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a, a great man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not have been a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil himself. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He is either a lunatic, a liar, or he is Lord. And I think what's important for us to recognize is you can be ever learning about Jesus and never come to a knowledge of the truth about who he is. There are institutions that have been propped up by theological learning. There are seminaries in this country belonging to the universities that have been around for since this nation's inception. Scholars who make their living writing books about Jesus and the Bible who don't believe that he's God. They can tell you all of the exegetical details of the text. They can tell you the, all of the oldest manuscripts and compare and talk about the differences between them and know lots of historical facts about Jesus' context and the time he lived and the people he ministered to. They can have read all the materials, but unless faith is working in their heart through the power of the Holy Spirit, they will never grasp the truth of who Jesus is. They will always be learning and never come to a knowledge of the truth. Always learning and never come to a knowledge of the truth. And now in verse 20, Jesus wants to see if his disciples know him better than the masses. Verse 20 Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? The you here is plural. In English, you usually just is singular. 
In Greek and Hebrew, you can be one person or it can be a group of people. So then Jesus is kind of saying, well, who do you all, my disciples, say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up for the disciples, as he always does, right? Peter, he just, he just can't help it, you know? He just, I, like I said, I, I, I relate to Peter. You know, he has, he has a foot-shaped mouth. You know, he's just always speaking up. And some, but, but a lot of times he says really good things. And he just speaks up. And he says, the Christ of God. And he wants to be the first guy with the answer. You know, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ of God. And he's speaking on behalf of the disciples. I said a minute ago that the crowd's confession was a colossal miss, but Peter's confession is a colossal admission. He recognizes Jesus, that the Father is working alongside him. And Matthew, in his version of this story, says, has Jesus saying, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That was Peter's other name. That was Peter's Hebrew name. Simon, son of Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not what? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Jesus recognizes the Spirit, only the Spirit, can reveal to someone who Jesus really is. That's why all that learning cannot get you there. That's why all the miracles, though they're meant to speak of who Jesus is, without the work of the Holy Spirit, you can't get there. You can't make that final step. The Spirit must be at work. Now, we have, we have a doctrine for this. We call it effectual calling. And what that means is you can be exposed to all the information, you read the Bible, see great things, the work of God, but the Holy Spirit has to be at work inside of you, making the call of the gospel, the gospel call, the announcement and pronouncement of who Jesus is, it makes it effective and work. It's the magic in our confession, the Holy Spirit's work, making what we hear effectual in our hearts. Jesus responds viscerally. Why? What, what did that confession really mean? Well, if you can think of it like this, the question Jesus is asking is, imagine a young up-and-coming politician who's been campaigning for public office. Jackie should appreciate this illustration. She's in politics. Uh, well, imagine an up-and-coming politician, and he's been on the campaign trail, and he's trying to break in the public office, and he asks his inner circle after a long day on the campaign trail, who are the people saying, what are the people saying about me? And his, you know, his campaign staff say, well, some people think you could be mayor. Others, a senator. Uh, we've heard other people say, you could, you could be governor. And he says, yeah, but what do you think? And they say, we think you could be president. I mean, that's kind, of the, that's kind of the admission that Peter has just made when he says, you're the Christ. Others say you're a prophet, a great teacher, but we think you're the Christ. And it's a colossal admission because it's this vote of absolute confidence in Jesus. 
They have utter confidence in him and who he is and his potential. They still don't know exactly what it means. But they know the Spirit is at work in them, causing them to make this confession. And you know, what we confess matters. Every now and again, we'll have the Apostles' Creed up here, and we'll read it. And one of the reasons we read the Apostles' Creed is because confessing who Jesus is, who the Christ is, is important. Christ is from the Greek word uh, Christos, for Messiah. It's the Greek word of the Hebrew version of Messiah, the God of Israel's anointed one, who would conquer the enemies of God's people and restore their fortunes. We say flippantly, Jesus is the Messiah. Yeah, he's the Messiah. We've heard it our whole lives. We know what it means. But we probably very rarely stop to think about the depth of that statement, that Jesus is the Christ. For them, it was filled with, it was just filled with so much import. Because they knew, they had been expecting the long-awaited Messiah, the one prophesied by the prophets, but they don't fully understand what the Messiah is supposed to be. And by the time Jesus comes on the scene, and by the time they make this admission, the Messiah has become a political military ruler who is going to vanquish all of Israel's enemies, but they have kind of neglected the places in the prophets and the Psalms that talk about the Messiah as someone who would suffer. And you can kind of understand why, because it's not popular, right? Who who is overcome with joy at the idea of a a ruler who suffers, right? When you think of your life being victorious and having a good life and living the good life, you don't say, oh, and it's going to be filled with so many moments of suffering, it's going to be great. You don't do that. You don't think about life that way. Suffering is an anomaly. You don't want it. And so for them, the idea that they would think of their conquering ruler to vanquish Israel's enemies, restore their fortunes, they've kind of skipped over the places in the scriptures that talk about the suffering servant. And it's kind of a downer, right? But Isaiah prophesying seven centuries before in Isaiah 53 He prophesies not only Jesus' suffering, but the fact that Jesus' own generation wouldn't pick up on it. And this is what he says in Isaiah 53 and 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for those of his own generation... Who of them considered that he would be cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Seven centuries earlier, the prophet Isaiah says, this is what the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, the anointed one will be, but none of the people in his own generation will even consider that he would conquer God, conquer the enemies of the kingdom through suffering. Jesus says in the next couple verses, he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell it to no one. 
saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You would think that once Jesus heard from them, you're the Messiah, the promised one, that he would say, yes, now go out and tell everyone. And he does just the opposite. He says, don't tell a soul. And the reason is because Jesus knows that the popular conception of Messiah is, is an image that's going to be politicized, and he doesn't want that type of ministry. He's not looking to be armed with a sword and to lead a battalion of men against the Romans because that's exactly what the Jews are thinking the Messiah is going to do. And he says, don't tell anyone about this. He charges them not to say anything. In our own time, right now, we're at a, we're at a really weird time. We're at a time where the very notion of truth has been tied in knots and upended. Declaring anything absolute is a tricky game because of the way postmodernism works on all of us. You know, at least with the rationalists 50 or 60 years ago, they, they believed that, that scientism was the answer to everything, but at least they believed that there were absolute truths. Now we don't have that. And so when we proclaim that Christ is Lord, we do so confidently, but also with the knowledge that the Holy Spirit, just like in the disciples, has to be at work. We realize that not everyone is going to receive this message of who Jesus is, but we shouldn't be discouraged by that. Because those who need to know that message, those who are meant to receive that message, will receive it. Now, the question is not even who will receive it. In fact, Jesus is less concerned about what other people think. He's concerned about what his disciples think. And so the question to you is, who do you say that Jesus is? Your neighbor, your coworker, a family member, a relative, they're certainly not going to get it if you don't get it. So the question is, who are you saying that Jesus is? What's your story about Jesus? Is he a good luck charm? Is he the one that makes things go right in your life, you know? You pray when you need him, you talk about what he's done for you, but maybe he's not the center and the focus of all of your trust and hope. Are you trusting in Jesus? Not only for salvation, but for your very life. If I were to compile your friends and neighbors and coworkers as a reporter and say, what does so-and-so say about Jesus? Have you ever heard them talk about Jesus? What would they say? While you're thinking about that, if, if I uh, was able to go up to heaven and talk to God as a reporter, say, God, what does this person say about your son? What would God say? Would your friends say, well, shoot, I've never, I've known this person for 15 years. I've never heard them say a word about Jesus. Or would they say, they're always talking about Jesus. They worship this Jesus. Boy, they're convinced. What would they say, you say, about who Jesus is? That begs the question, who is Jesus to you? Is he Lord? 
Because if he's Lord, that information ought to change everything about the way you live your life. Let's pray. God, our Savior, now we, we recognize and we realize that uh, sometimes we can become bored with the, the knowledge that we've been given. It can become dull to us if we don't keep it before us. That Jesus is Lord and Savior, Messiah, the Christ. Father, help us to have a renewed vision of the glory of Jesus. That he was indeed, in many ways, a prophet, proclaiming to us the will of God, prophesying future events, is himself the fulfillment of the promises of God, but is more than a prophet. Father, we don't want the almost there Jesus. We want the Jesus of Scripture who in his very person dwelt all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Help us to worship your Son as God and by worshiping Jesus, we are worshiping the triune God. Father, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Now let us respond.